0: Welcome to the Sacred Lab Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan. And you're listening to this with the entire world. Everyone is paying attention. Everyone is standing beside you, listening to this podcast. Big claims. I want to have this podcast be a series and I've just come up with a name the Keystone Actions series because I'm a little bit of an intellectual wanker so it's gotta be that sort of a name now the Keystone Actions that I'm talking about are those kinds of areas of inquiry and Places of discussion and spaces for radical attention and presence and eventually wise action that are pivotal to changing our course and building the better way that we want. As Charles Eisenstein puts it, the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. So in this series I'm going to be talking with people who are and who have been involved in areas that I deem, because I'm the lord of this domain, that I deem as being in that position, Uh, There'll be a lot of permaculture. There'll be a lot of thinking differently about resource use. Um, There'll be discussions about health and food. I think probably this first series, as I'm getting into it, it'll be a more surface level, these are the kinds of actions that are essential. Um, I think in terms of an introduction to a lot of the things that I'm going to be talking about, having that physical representation, but not really representation because it's the real thing, but having that, that real example of not so much this is what it looks like when you change your behavior, but this is how to do it. And if you want to see what it looks like, you can look at some of the projects that the people I'm going to be talking to have been involved in. So with that, this first interview is with Robin Francis, who is the head permaculturalist uh, and owner-operator of Jan Bung Gardens, that's D-J-A-N-B-U-N-G Gardens. You can find them at Permaculture Australia. No, no, no you won't. You'll find them at permaculture.com.au. Robin also runs a PDC on-site twice a year. Uh, She has some online courses. She also does uh, uh, shorter courses and workshops and things like that at the farm. Um, One coming up is the uh, Forgotten Arts Fair. Looking at the role of... um, Well, blacksmithing is kind of the only one that I'm aware is uh, put on during this fair. Um, and the role that these older styles of doing things have, um, in our society and kind of moving toward a more energy and resource conscious society and, um, culture, maybe they're the same thing. Uh, and these other these courses and workshops and things are kind of channeled through the banner of Permaculture College Australia, which Robin um, set up herself. Um, Jan Bun Gardens is in Nimbin. It's a lovely area. Uh, I spent a month there, maybe a month ish ago um tending to the animals and doing some weeding and getting to know the place a little bit it was an interesting and challenging time i learned things that i didn't realize i needed to know about permaculture and about living on living on a farm uh throughout this interview there are several sound issues the program I use has an uh, echo cancellation function and um, it wasn't turned on. So every now and then there's a slight delay in things and it's coming in over the top. And um, And I'm a one-man show and I don't really want to edit it out. So deal with it. It doesn't interrupt any of the um, important discussions. If you want to know more about Sacred Lab podcast, there's not a lot of places you can go. You can follow us on most of your favorite podcasting platforms. Um, I like to use Google Podcasts so that I can feed the machine more quickly all of my data. Um, But you're welcome to reach out to me to find out any information or to tell me just how much you enjoyed the discussion and how you think I might be just an awesome person to spend time with. Uh, You can email me, ryan at sacredlab.com. That's probably enough umming from me. Here's my interview with Robin Francis. Okay. Thanks for joining me, Robin. I really appreciate your your time this morning.
1: Thanks, Ryan. I'm looking forward to... Exploring things. Oh,
0: ah, good. Um, so you've just been at the um, the APC, the Australasian Permaculture Convergence. How did yeah. that go? How was that?
1: Very inspiring. Yeah, um, it was great. There was oh, just under two hundred people there, uh, which I think, under the circumstances, and that you know, like a week before, um, Brisbane was in. Uh, a three-day lockdown, so um, yeah, it was great to all come together, and it was a lovely venue, sort of yep. sitting in nature, and mm. yeah, I'm and good. so good to connect with people because I missed the last two APCs, so it was lovely to catch up.
0: Yeah, did you um, present anything? Did you do a? Do a I did a
1: keynote on the um, on the third ethic fair share. Okay. and just tried to sort of broaden the horizons and the context of that is I think uh, there's a lot of uh, subtleties that often get missed with that okay. e- ethic mm.
0: um, what are some of the subtleties that you think get get,
1: get well I think the um, if you look at the definition of the designers manual it doesn't mention dispersal of surplus but it um, it defines a third ethic as um, uh, setting limits to population and consumption. And by governing our needs, uh, we can then um, have, um, you know, see what we can allocate uh, to um, furthering people care and health care. Okay. And so in many respects, and especially in the current context of the Anthropocene and what's happening, uh, it – It becomes really essentially the enabling uh, ethic to realise the first two. And so, you know, we sort of started looking at like ecological footprints and uh, just how Australia's footprint uh, in the last 10 years has gone from 3.6 planets uh, to um, 5.4 planets.
0: Oh, wow. Oh, wow.
1: Yes, and that doesn't count all the carbon that we're exporting to the rest of the world. That goes into, like, China's carbon footprint and <laughs> they burn our coal and yeah, mm, smelt our iron ore and all that stuff. Mm.
0: Yeah, that's yeah, interesting. That's, that's one of the one things, of things that, that, struck, that me struck me about permaculture when doing, doing or uh, talking, about talking about an energy, an energy audit. audit. On kind of the um, what we are consuming as individuals, and then as a household, kind of you, mm. the further out you push, the more you you are like, well, it's all linked in, and there is a much bigger footprint for almost every decision I make than most yeah. people would be willing to look at.
1: Yeah, we start to look at all the embodied energies, and and you know, and fair shares also about sort of social justice. No, it's, um, and uh, these wonderful technologies that we're uh, depending so heavily on now and uh, when you start to think about the full social impact of that, uh, it's pretty sobering, you know, all the child labour and people you know, sort of having very short lifespans from dealing with all these toxic rare earths and um, all that stuff, it uh, makes you feel a little uncomfortable. And I just warned them, I said, look, some of the things I'm going to say, you know, are going to cause some discomfort. Um, (laughs) I feel that discomfort myself, so I'm not pointing fingers. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. But I think they're really important perspectives that we need to take on board. And, yeah, sure, we use these technologies. I see them as an important interim um, tool for communications but I wonder just how much of the long-term uh, sustainable uh, society they'll actually become. And uh, when we look at sort of like internet communications in within the next 10 years is going to have a carbon footprint of um, 14% of our global carbon emissions. Wow. And just things like Bitcoin at the moment um the energy consumed for those massive data centres uh, is equal to um, the carbon emissions of the entire aviation industry. I mean, that's before the, the, the COVID restrictions on aviation. Wow. Mm.
0: Yeah, I wasn't so aware it was even, that high. It,
1: it you know, really brings things, yeah, you know, well, things like Bitcoin are particularly energy-hungry. Um so yeah, it's um it's yeah, I think important sort of food for food for thought.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah.
0: And kind of just on that, um uh technology being an interim for communication. Mm. Um kind of something that you've set up with Jan Bungardens where you are in Nimbin, is not an interim of sorts. It's a more substantial, um, it's an education centre. Um, mm. I'm, I'm wondering if you can just kind of tell, tell us a bit about Jambun Gardens and, and your intentions there.
1: Yeah, well, um, I started teaching permaculture in 1984, a year after I did my PDC. And um, then started teaching the full design courses, and uh, got frustrated after a, uh, a few courses with, um, you know, using hard venues and and just struggling to find, you know, good comprehensive examples. So it was my dream to um, find some land and set up an um, education centre where we walk the talk. And <laughs> Uh, bridge the gap between theory and practice and, you know, sort of move from an indoor classroom into an outdoor classroom where we see the principles at at work in, you know, in a diversity of ways. Uh, So um, I was based in Sydney um, up until 89 and then moved up to the north coast and started looking for my perfect patch and uh, I've found it, and so Yanmung Gardens is uh, five and a half acres, uh, plus uh, an additional two and a half that we call Lands End. Um, set that up as an as a permaculture education centre. So we've got our lovely uh, hexagonal earth brick building here for our training room and office and commercial kitchen, and and uh, we've got our residence here, which is sort of focused around three lovely old railway carriages and um, and got our yeah, beautiful vibrant um, uh, lush uh, living classroom out there of our working systems and it's uh it's pretty pretty special and it just keeps on growing mm.
0: yeah yeah absolutely yeah it was quite it's quite interesting seeing the um, – you showed a series of photos of kind of how things have developed over the last sort of 10, 15 years. Um, and it was quite striking because walking around it, a lot of the things are now integrated. They're just working together. But kind of seeing how everything was built – and how how those things slowly, slowly developed and then got to the point when, you know, it's kind of hard to see where one begins and where one ends. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting.
1: Yeah, it's been a wonderful, wonderful journey and uh, not over yet. Mm. That's all right.
0: Um, all right, I'd like to slightly shift gears. Um and talk about some of your community engagement.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, kind of before you got into permaculture, you were doing a bit of political activism. Um, you, you you told me a story when I came up in December for the first, just to say hello, um, a story about, you were raising money through making music and playing gigs mm-hmm. to conserve um, a patch of forest somewhere. Can you, can yeah, you tell that us that story?
1: Was, uh, that was the largest band of Antarctic beach and it's a forest just west of Warhope and I was living on the mid-north coast at that time and uh, it was... Uh, the, the, the forestry department was going to be harvesting and logging out the corkwood, uh, which is sort of like the um, canopy and the support species for these uh, precious ancient Antarctic beech forests, which go right back to uh, the time of uh, Gondwana and uh, ancient Gondwanan forests. Um, and that was sort of at the same time Uh, that the Big Terrania protest was happening up here in the northern rivers, and uh, there was also protests happening um, near, uh, just south of um, Coffs Harbour uh, to save some of the last um, literal rainforest, coastal rainforest from sand mining. Uh, So in Warhope, we actually took the... Uh, forestry Department to court because they had started putting in the roads for the logging trucks uh, before they received their permission to start uh, logging. And, uh, of course, it, you know, it takes money to take things to the Land and Environment Court and uh, so we did lots of music gigs. We had a bush band and uh, did lots of gigs and stuff to uh, raise the funds for towards that that court case, which was successful, and we managed to save that forest. Uh, so were the other two uh, ones that happened at that time. And these were, I suppose, the three initial major um, rainforest or forest uh, protests that succeeded that were uh, based on nonviolent action. And, uh, yeah, uh, they've uh, inspired a lot of things since then, like the Franklin and... Other, other protests. And, you know, in the more recent years, the uh, Bentley uh, protests to stop the coal seam gas happening in our area.
0: Right. Um, so where would you do your um, uh, engagement and fundraising?
1: Well, uh, what then? Or
0: Yeah, 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 like for that uh, uh, piece of Antarctic Forest?
1: Oh, we had some bush dances. We had a big gig in the uh, Port Macquarie Town Hall. And, um, yeah, that they, they were sort of the major things that we did. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, we had a oh, band and there was another uh, local group that was sort of more of a bluegrass band. So we often uh, partnered up and put on wonderful sort of, um, yeah, sort of. Country nights, um, or yeah, not 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 country and western country, but um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Mm. Yeah. oh, good. Mm. Um, yeah, so political engagement is kind of vital for systemic changes to take place.
1: Oh, look, at, and yeah, we've got to yeah. protect. We've got to protect the precious things that we have uh and that's part of our you know sort of our, i suppose our political responsibility uh to to the earth to the planet is to uh protect and preserve what exists and to um regenerate um the you know the systems that have been been damaged and uh, we don't have much time left I and mean, it's sort of it's a very disturbing that... uh you know, destruction is still happening at such a pace, especially in this country, and they're still, you know, they're giving verbal homage to zero emissions sometime down the track, but at the same token they want to open up new coal mines and, 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 and you know, force a so-called gas-led recovery on the economy and uh, the reality just isn't getting through to that political arena. Uh, so I think we've got a huge responsibility in terms of raising people's awareness of these things and also, you know, ensuring that elections don't get hijacked uh, with, um, you know, false information and you know, eventually just appealing to people's fears, irrational fears and, uh, you know, hip-pocket, um, knee-jerk reactions.
0: Hmm. Ha- what sort of role do you see permaculture having in this space? Because kind of as far as I've seen, there does seem to be a bit of a, a rebellious nature to permaculture. And um, yeah, I'm wondering, yeah, I'm just wondering how how permaculture can kind of assist in this political kind of shifting?
1: I think um, permaculture could do more in terms of, you know, trying to lobby and uh, get things out to the mainstream media. But that sort of needs the clout of a major organisation. Uh, permaculture Australia is uh, aspiring to move in that direction Uh and a lot of permaculture is actually happening more on the local level and uh the bioregional level and building local community and uh what can be done in terms of local government and uh local uh grassroots actions. And I think many of these have been exceptionally uh, successful. Uh we just need, you know, um, more of more more of all <laughs> the <be> above.
0: Mm. <laughs> yeah, and that's um, that's something that struck me about Nimbin while I was up there. Yeah. You were kind of g- giving giving me a bit of a history on it when we were out for dinner, um, and to hear of how much community engagement there is in Nimbin and how tight knit everybody is. That so much of the property of the property in the main street is owned communally. Yeah. Um, What is it about Nimbin that has um, kind of catalyzed this sort of thinking and behaviour?
1: I think some of it tracks back to the Aquarius Festival in the early 70s. Uh, And, I mean, real estate was so cheap then. And Nimbin was a dying village. The butter factory had closed down. The dairy industry had collapsed because, um, you know, there was no export market for Australian butter when the UK joined the common market. And uh, it was a plight faced by many uh, small country towns up and down the east coast. Um, So during that time, um, there were shops that were going for, that were, you know, closed down, uh, that were going for like $1,000. So a bunch of people would sort of chip in a few hundred dollars each and uh, and, and buy a shop and, and people started buying land collectively. Uh, so within a 15-kilometre radius, we've got some sort of over 40 intentional land-sharing communities. Um, but then, you know, life sort of moved on and uh, by the time we sort of come around to the 90s, uh, Nimbin certainly had um, issues of, you know, community services, lack thereof, and uh, there was at that time a a terrible heroin problem in town and we were struggling to retain things like our local hospital. Uh, And then uh, the old school came on the market as the uh, state government had built a new school and the old school site was uh, being sold for you know $400,000 if it was going into private ownership or half the price if it was going into public ownership. So we got together as a community, approached council hoping they might purchase it and hold it on behalf of the community and council said no. Uh, but if you can raise half the money and give us a watertight uh, business plan to pay off the uh, remainder, we can provide a low to no interest loan. Uh, So the community went down that track and it was a really empowering thing because up until then it had always been complaints about lack of external funding coming in from the government for us to be able to do things. And uh, over... Uh, sort of less than 18 months, the community uh, did a lot of fundraising and we had a a big um, sort of like festival called Visions of Nimbin um, in the hall. It was over an Easter weekend, uh, sorry, in the showground, and uh, lots of, you know, sort of gigs and dances and concerts and all sorts of fundraisers and uh, came together as a community and we actually raised um over um was it I think it was uh, one thousand uh sorry hundred and eighteen thousand dollars um in less than a year and a half and it's not a community that's got a lot of disposable income. And that was a really empowering thing. Uh and that has sort of you know led on and to and inspired uh many other initiatives. But then uh there were also the uh, I suppose the traditional community-owned infrastructures in town, like the, uh, the 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 school of arts or the Nimbin Hall, and the showground and the bowling club, and so um, these have all undergone sort of generational changes in within the last two decades, and uh, the community feels a lot more integrated now and less sort of like straight versus hippie. There's been a lot of bridges built. There's been big generational shifts. Uh, The um, then one of the old houses in Nimbin, Seven Sibley Street, came on the market, and so as a community, we've also purchased that and setting that up as a sustainability hub. And that's going from strength to strength. And houses our community tool library and. Um, is uh, facilitating a lot of, you know, workshops and uh, lots of great activities. Uh, and then just a couple of months ago um, uh, another community purchase happened uh, of uh, a property that was sort of like the key to actually having an integrated green space, heart of the village and, um, a, you know, a, a, a walking trail that connects different parts of the village and also goes through some regenerating rainforest areas and so on. That came on the market and as a combination of community and uh, private uh, enterprise, like Rainbow Power Company, have supported it substantially because it borders onto their land. Um, and so, you yeah, know, that's sort of the the, the, the latest. Uh, in that series of, uh, of, of, of community purchases. And then there's also been things like the community solar power station and that came out of our sustainable Nimbin or transition uh, meetings and uh, we uh, managed to actually get some funding for that and so there are solar panels on six of our community-owned buildings throughout the village and the um, that feeds into the grid and, you know, for, and gets paid. Um, and the, the payment for that electricity uh, uh, covers the wage of a part-time sustainability officer uh, under the auspice of the Neighbourhood Information Centre. And I think, you know, there will be more to come. I think one of the areas that uh, needs attention... Uh, whether it, whether we can put it together or not is another matter, but uh, I really think uh, there's an urgent need for you know community housing, maybe set up as housing cooperatives, and yeah, uh, because there's a, such a rental crisis, uh, housing crisis, and especially with rental uh, in in the area, not just Nimbin but Lismore, Byron Bay, you know, all around the northern rivers.
0: Have you been involved in any community, community housing efforts or, effort or anything, like anything like this in the past?
1: Uh, n- not in that nature. I've been involved in designing um, and consulting on uh, intentional communities, multiple occupancies and um, uh, rural community Title. Oh, and a, 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 an urban uh, community title project. Uh, so that's been where most of my effort has gone. Um, also, yeah, consulting on just smaller scales of expanded households and uh, things of that nature. But, yeah, setting up a whole, um, setting up a whole you know, housing co-op, and that, that is massive. It would need uh, quite a team of people. And it would need a lot of capital, especially with um, current planning and council requirements and conditions, which are actually you know, pretty onerous at the moment.
0: Yeah. yeah, right. So when you were talking about how, um, how the community purchased prop- property together, who is it that's actually doing the purchasing? Like have you set up – a local organisation?
1: It's it's done, most of it has been under the um, under Nimbin Community Centre um, Incorporated. Um, or I think it's now, it was initially a, an association, I think it's now company limited by guarantee, which is the non-profit member-based company, uh, as is um, the Nimbin Neighbourhood Centre. Uh, So it's been done through existing, you know, community organisations that are membership uh, democratic based.
0: Okay. So is that kind of a thing um, viable for other suburbs and places? Like I'm just wondering how... Well, there's how other towns can sorry, yes. you go on um,
1: you know there's, there's there's nothing special about these legal structures it's a matter of a community coming together and um, and uh, with with a serious intent and uh, i suppose in a in a way it sort of it, it takes a, a degree of community trust uh, the organizations need to i have a track record They need credibility they need to have transparency, accountability, otherwise you know, people won't trust them. They, it's best if they're not controlled by any particular vested interest um, All the above. But uh, I think it's, uh, and, and this was something that I sort of brought up in my keynote uh, last week uh, on fair share, um, is that reclaiming of the commons. And I think it's something that every community can do. I mean, most, you know, country towns and, and villages will have some community-owned assets, you know, that are owned by community organisations, like a little country hall. And they'll have the hall committee, you know, and association. Usually um, most country areas well in New South Wales, they're called school of, you know, the school of arts. And uh, that's an old historic thing. Uh, but these um, these are all possibilities. I find a lot of our sporting facilities are owned and managed by uh, a not for profit community organisation, uh, sort of like you know bowling clubs. And in some urban areas, you know bowling clubs uh, they've lost their demographic. Like when you look at the St Kilda um, Community Arts Gardens. Uh, that was, um, that was a that was a a bowling club, and it, you know it lost its membership. They either died out or moved into old people's homes or whatever. And um, there was no demographic there with the you know the changes that have happened in St Kilda. And uh, with that ownership uh, and in a, as a community organisation, any assets of that organisation, if it winds up must go on to another community-owned organisation, not-for-profit. And uh, so um, that's a way of sort of like ensuring some form of transition into the future as well or succession. Uh, so the, um, the, the community garden set up there, not-for-profit, and uh, took over the management and ownership of that space and... The old clubhouses of you know, studios and facilities for seed banks and things and they've and the, and the old bowling greens are really beautiful productive uh, community garden spaces uh, I think and there's we've got to get over that thing that you know the government's got to do everything for us and that was the big that was the big shift that happened with the uh, community centre, getting the community centre, buying the old school here in Nimbin was going from that sort of victim mentality to, hey, you know, if we all put in together um, all those little surpluses, you know, um, some people could only chip in $100, some people could chip in, you know, $1,000, some people could chip in $10,000 and coming together and, uh, doing fundraising events, which are you know community building in and of themselves uh, it um it makes some um, it's it's very empowering and you just never know where it can lead
0: <laughs> um, um, so just next door to you is Jalen which is um well, I'll let you talk more about it, but it's it's um you know, one of those land sharing efforts mm. that could potentially be something that kind of spreads maybe closer to cities and more in into more urban areas. Um, could you talk a bit about Jalumbar?
1: Yes, uh yeah, Jalumbar is different to a lot of the older land-sharing communities, which are often called multiple occupancies, uh, where the land is owned by uh, a company or a cooperative or a trust and people as members of that have exclusive use of a certain area to build their home and make their gardens. And, and, um, of course, the number of houses, you know, depends on council and, Uh, planning instruments and and so forth. But it was back in the 80s that we also saw that there was a need for something that was uh, structured a little uh, more formally. Uh, One of the issues with uh, those earlier multiple occupancies is people getting in and out. I mean, it gave people access, especially in the 70s, to very cheap land. Uh, But um, as land prices have increased over time, uh, one of the uh, challenges that faces people in many of those multiple occupancies is getting in and getting out because you do not have a mortgageable asset. Uh, You can't mortgage uh, a share in a company or a cooperative or or a unit trust. Um, And, of course, banks don't want to lend to an individual that's tied up with the uh, land ownership collectively with, you know, 10 or 20 or 50 other households. It doesn't look nice if you have to foreclose if somebody uh, defaults on their loan. Uh, So that was one of the issues. Uh, One of the earlier communities, a large one, Bill and Cliffs, which is about uh, 15 Ks out of of, um, Nimbin, went through a very convoluted process which took many years, I think three years or something, to apply strata title to a horizontal development because strata title in New South Wales has uh, traditionally been for sort of like high-rise and townhouses and the body corporate owns the buildings and you just own the space inside them uh, as a freehold title. Uh, So we started lobbying state government um, in 1983 to get um, that kind of legislation or form of land ownership um, for horizontal development. And uh, it was interesting in Queensland, the um, original Building Units and Group Titles Act was actually written in a way that it could be uh, applied vertically or horizontally, and so that's what enabled uh, Crystal Waters uh, to happen, which was, I suppose, the first of those intentional uh, communities uh, that uh, where people actually had freehold title of their individual house block and then through a body corporate uh, collectively owned and managed all the community land. Uh, so in 1989, the Community Titles Act uh, was passed, uh, by the New South Wales government came into effect a year later and um, and it wasn't that long after it came into effect that I was contacted uh, by a farmer from Nimbin who was getting some land, 55 acres, rezoned for rural residential and he was not comfortable with the idea of doing a standard subdivision Uh, So he uh, got in touch with me and I came out and had a look and I explained about the community title and so he decided to go down that track. And so Jalambar was the first uh, rural community title in New South Wales. So there was a lot of, you know, sort of uh, uh, (laughs) (laughs) teeth-breaking, ground-breaking um, effort that went into that. It was really interesting, sort of educating Council and educating the surveyors, and then down the track the real estate agents and the planners and everybody else uh, about this uh, new new form of land tenure. Um, it's uh, and I think that you know has a lot of uh, possibilities, a lot of potential. I think it's underexplored in that respect. Uh, but yeah, we're I'm really happy with how Jarlambah has gone. So on the Uh, It's 55 acres, there's uh, 43 half-acre blocks and so that's sort of, what, 22 acres is um, privately owned uh, as uh, as individual freehold titles and uh, the remainder, um, 33 acres, is uh, collectively owned and managed uh, by everybody uh, who lives there. And uh, with the community land, I also just divided it into um, specified land use uh, areas uh, with uh, bylaws for the sustainable management of those areas. So along the gully systems, um, it's uh, you know it's, a, it's enshrined as also being a wildlife corridor and uh, to be revegetated. Uh, with uh, local riparian rainforest species and uh, things of that nature uh, there's um, several uh, several areas that are reserved for agriculture um, two of those are being used um, in that way one's got a wonderful crop of bamboos on it uh, the other one has a citrus orchard and um, various. Uh, residents over the years have leased patches of the large ag lot uh, to uh, set up market gardens and sort of grow a serious garlic crop and things like that. Um, but these uh, these areas I see as sort of really important for the future when we're designing for communities. We're not just designing for the here and now. Uh, we need to think in terms of generations of use, and uh, it takes a while before a community or people on a community have got a lot of surplus energy and time to put into uh, community activities and enterprise um, because you know they've got to build their own home and uh, pay off their mortgage and you know, sort of, um, keep their jobs and their profession going and raise their kids and, and, and so on. And I think, you know, a lot of the disappointment that many people have had moving into communities is that um, sort of unrealistic expectations that everybody's going to be doing all this stuff together and um, love, peace, brown rice, happiness, they're all going to be just like me. And, um, but life isn't like that. And we're all very diverse. You know, a community will be a microcosm of the macrocosm. And I think a community is successful if everybody can actually be good neighbours, and not necessarily best friends. Uh, it's also um, it's important that you know people can uh, sort of dip in and out of uh, communal activities too. I mean, there's times in your life you know things might be going tough and uh, you just need, you know, me time or you need time to heal or, uh, you know, if you've got a diversity of uh, people, ages and backgrounds, you're going to have your retirees, you're going to have your elderly and they're not going to be out there sort of, you know, pulling out weeds eight hours a week or (laughs) whatever. Um, So there needs to be, you know, flexibility for contributions in, sort of cash kind or even alternative currencies. Um, and I think there's room for a lot more creativity around things like that. Certainly hard costs uh, for managing community resources and land and needs to be covered with cash. Um, but uh, then there's you know lots of other things that need to be done that could be done in kind through labour or Donations, contributions of materials, and or you know, caring for the kids while the mum and dads sort of get out there and get busy and uh, things like that. There's um, many ways that people can contribute in community.
0: Mm. So the the um, the agricultural area that's set out on Jarlunbar. Um, the income for that is that distributed amongst the individuals there, or um, is is that the overarching body?
1: No, I'm not sure how it's working at the moment. But they actually, do. if somebody wants to do something on that land, as uh, sort of like a market garden or a cash crop, uh, they actually lease uh, an area from the uh, from the, the 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 body corporate or the it's actually called a neighbourhood association. Uh, whereas the things like the citrus orchard, that's, um, I suppose, communal uh, territory, uh, they have a food swap up there regularly at their little community hall, and people bring surpluses from their gardens. So um, one of my diploma students did a major survey of Jalimba, um celebrating its, uh, you know, 20 years and uh, there were some really interesting uh, statistics came out of that. So on the whole, um, people are, you know, growing sort of like 20 to 50% of their food on their lots, and um, most of them have vegetable gardens. There's only a couple that don't. Um, More than half of them have got chickens. You know, it's... uh, on, or, or every household is completely independent in terms of water and um, wastewater and sewage uh, treatment. So that's all on the individual lots. And uh, as a result, and through the uh, bylaws, we promoted um, the installation of dry composting toilets. So 80% of lots have got dry composting toilets. There's only a couple of flush systems on there. And they are ones that can reclaim the water and uh, recycle and reuse it through their landscape. Uh, so there was, you know, a lot of uh, groundbreaking things that uh, went went into Jarlambard, the design of the uh, legal structure, which has then sort of, you know, um, rippled out into the actual uh, practice and the way people have built and uh, developed their lots and managed their community.
0: Yeah right. Was there pushback um, on a council level for the installation of those dry composting? No,
1: toilets? we're uh, very fortunate. Lismore was, I think, the first council in there were well, definitely in New South Wales that uh, started to approve uh, um, dry composting toilets, and uh, some people over at the um, Dhammananda community, the Channon. Uh, Lee Davidson, who was actually the head of the uh, Environmental Science Faculty at Southern Cross University, and uh, his um, co-worker, Ray Flanagan, uh, they actually came up with a wonderful design for uh, the the compost toilet, the big one we've got here at Janburn Gardens. It's their design. Uh, they call it the Clivus Minimus, uh, sort of based on the, uh, the Clivus Maltram, um model, but it's a, a, a DIY build-it-yourself um, toilet, and uh, council approves that. You know, um, it's been tried and tested for the last, you know, 30, 40 years. Uh, so we've got a council which is um, amenable and has a long track record of approving uh, composting toilets. I think this was actually the first time something like that was actually written into uh, the bylaws and directives. Uh, One of the things with Jalambar, normally if you've got on-site waste treatment, uh, a rural residential lot needs to be a minimum one acre in size. And from my experience with communities over the years. For a lot of families, one acre is just too much land to manage. A half acre is a lot more manageable. Uh, But the reason for the one acre is to have enough land uh, for um, a septic tank um, infiltration system. Uh, And, uh, you know, septic tanks invariably, you know, you've got not just the grey water, but you've got your black water of your plush toilet going in there. And so by encouraging the dry composting toilets, then it's a lot easier to um, sort of treat and reuse grey water in the landscape. Uh, so our council allowed us to bring the minimum lot size down to the half acre on the condition that there were you know, stringent bylaws for the treatment of uh, wastewater on site and things like that. So there was... Not so much pushback, but there was a lot of negotiations uh, along the way, but they were done in a spirit of, you know, cooperation and collaboration and wanting to have the best thing for the environment and for the people that live there.
0: Hmm. Is that something that could be, so like say, for instance, um, I'm in Dramana, I think. We're on like seven hundred and fifty meters squared. Um, is the installation of a dry compost toilet the kind of thing that would kind of purely be relative to the council and the area that, yeah, that we're in?
1: You'd need to apply to council to set up a pop up or legal. Um, on waste treatment, on site waste treatment is really important. Uh. You know, it's it's a big environmental responsibility, not just for the health and well-being of, you know, the people that are living on a property, but for the wider uh, environment. Because if your uh, system, um, especially dealing with your humanure waste, uh, is not up to scratch, well, then you're going to have dangerous E. coli going into the the waterways and or leaching out onto neighbouring properties and so on. So. Um, waste treatment, and particularly toilet waste treatment, is um, is a major concern for uh, for councils and uh, health regulations. And I think you know, with with good, um, it, it needs to be. Uh, although some councils still need a bit of um, encouragement in terms of accepting composting toilets, but I mean, there's. You know, there's so many examples now in the country, of ones that have been successfully managed and operated uh, for many decades now. Um, uh, it's um, and what's really interesting, um, Stuart White, uh, is a professor at the uh, University of Technology in Sydney at the moment, but. He was uh, living up in Lismore for many years uh, and working as an independent environmental consultant. Uh, he installed a he designed the wheelie bin composting toilet and installed it in his home in suburban Lismore. Now council um, fought against that. They said, no, look, you're in a sewered area, you've got to connect to the sewerage. And he said, well, look, you know, we've got more and more housing happening, you know, sewage treatment plants are uh, being overtaxed and we have to build more and more. Um, This is a valid option for, you know, an in-town situation. So he actually took Lismore Council to the Land and Environment Court. And, of course, being an environmental engineer, uh He had all the you know the science and the data and the uh, the the um the, all the arguments to argue his case uh you know solid data and he won and uh, so that was a very interesting precedent in terms of um you know urban but i you'd have to go probably through the same battle with another council somewhere else uh, but once once a council actually loses a case in the Land and Environment Court, they're a lot more amenable to future applications.
0: Mm, Okay, that's good to know.
1: (laughs) But, you know, it's also really important, precedence for any of these things.
0: In terms of what's 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 already already been done and done, and gone
1: through all the hoops and hurdles of... The health department and council requirements, and and so on. You know, it's um, uh, having having good case studies, good precedents, can really help a long way. uh, a lot of uh, councils are basically conservative when it comes to sort of jumping into something uh, that's new that could potentially present, um, you know, a health or environmental liability but right, especially in terms of like human health, that's, that's one of the areas they're particularly paranoid about. Hmm.
0: Hmm. Okay. Um, have you been involved in uh, any uh, community-supported agriculture projects?
1: Not directly. Um, many of my students have set ones up in the areas where they live and uh, many of those have operated very successfully. And it, for a single property to do something like that, though, it's, it's, it's a huge ask uh, to have the diversity of produce available throughout the year that, you know, sort of will keep people subscribing. Um, and I re- what I really love is the model of Food Connect in uh, Brisbane, And that has been so successful. There's similar systems setting up in uh, Melbourne and uh, Sydney. Now, the way Food Connect operates, um, it's set up as a a not-for-profit company uh, with membership, and uh, they've got producer members. So I think there's something like 100 or 150 uh, farms that uh, provide uh, produce, So they get a really good range of uh, products, including value-added products and uh, meats and dairy products and grains and all sorts of things. Um, And they've got over 600 uh, consumer members uh, who are people who live in, um, in Brisbane. And so on the edge of Brisbane, they were renting and now they've actually purchased a big warehouse that has some cool storage rooms. It's got facilities for processing and value-adding food. So they get the uh, orders in from the farms. They put it out to their membership. People make their orders. The boxes are taken to um, different sort of key central locations where the subscriber can um, pick it up. And uh, it's um, it's really coordinated in a wonderful way. It makes a huge difference to um, the farmers becoming viable and, um, and it, it brings this wonderful uh, fresh organic produce uh, direct to consumers uh, for, you know, a good price. So everybody's sort of like a winner with things like this. And what was interesting too with Food Connect when – Remember uh, I was about 10 years ago there was um we had another big la nina event and um and a and a very wet um, indian ocean dipole at the same time and there were those massive floods in queensland you know an area the size of france and germany was underwater and many parts of brisbane were cut off people couldn't get supplies or couldn't get to supermarkets supermarkets couldn't get supplies to restock their shelves and so on. And um, uh, Food Connect actually put out to its membership who's got small boats, who's got surfboards um, boards, and and so (laughs) on, and they managed to actually get food out. They managed to get enough food in from the farms that weren't cut off by flood and uh, distribute that to... um, Places where people just, you know, roads were underwater and so people would actually boat the stuff across to them. And, and uh, I mean, you know, sort of Woolworths can't respond like that, can they? <laughs> uh, no, um, definitely
0: not. So, That's amazing. you know,
1: when you start to develop these community-based systems, they're a lot more resilient in the face of collapse. Uh, like we've got farmer's markets here. Uh, We've got our, you know, Wednesday afternoon farmer's market in Nimbin where we can get a lot of our our basic food needs. We've got, you know, dairy there. We've got um, a baker. We've got uh, Jake with his wonderful veggies. Sometimes we have the organic meat man there and, um, you know, various (coughs) other farmers and uh, producers and our meat man. And um, during the lockdown, you know, the the way the community pulled together here was really inspiring and uh, Nimbin Valley Dairy were taking orders online or by phone and uh, delivering to people, especially elderly people or people who were vulnerable and uh, didn't feel comfortable to sort of go and do any essential shopping. Uh, same with the baker and... Um, the way people sort of really, you know, looked out for each other, the same during the fires in uh, late 2019. Um, the, the way the community, you know, really took care of each other and especially with sort of food and essentials. And I think um, sort of beyond CSAs just building that community, food security and resilience is critical. And CSAs can be an important component of that but not the only one. Mm, okay. Mm.
0: Mm, okay.
1: Awesome. so we're kind of coming up awesome. so to we're kind of the coming, last coming
0: up few to minutes. Yeah. the last few minutes yeah I'm just wondering um, if you've got anything I'm just wondering like if you've like got anything promote. that you would like to promote if you've got any workshops coming up or anything like that? um,
1: We've got a few little things coming up, but the next major thing will be our um, permaculture design course in August, Uh, two weeks of a residential retreat immersing oneself uh, deeply into all aspects of permaculture. And um, just before Mm -hmm. a week before the course, uh, we'll be holding our – Forgotten Arts Fair. Uh, We had one in 2019 and it was hugely successful. Uh, We wanted to have one last year, but, of course, uh, COVID got in the way. So we're looking forward to doing that again. And the Forgotten Arts Fair is uh, promoting um, all those, uh, you know, forgotten arts and survival crafts and, and skills sort of world made by hand Uh, which I think is a really important aspect of uh, moving forward and just reclaiming, you know, a lot of our humanity and our heritage. Um, And uh, I think, you know, the best pushback against globalization and everything made in China is to start making things ourselves. So we've got our local fiber-to-fabric people, we've got our local blacksmiths group, we've got uh, the our local Vikings group that um are looking at all those old uh skills and uh survival crafts and uh, so many more. Uh so yeah celebrating uh these these traditional skills and it's a wonderful way for people to reconnect and to re empower themselves. Um and just making and mending and repairing and repurposing and all that sort of stuff. It's uh, very exciting. Mm.
0: No, very good. Um, what were the, the dates for that again? The
1: Forgotten is will be the 7th of um, August and then we've got the uh, residential permaculture design course starting I think the week after that, I think on the mm, 15th, 14th, 15th. It's on our website, permaculture. Dot com dot au. and uh, so you' yeah you can check out that and any other things. We've also got a little gardening course online uh, that uh, you can just slot into and do any time uh, at your leisure called uh, the Permaculture Gardener so uh, it's a great way for people to get started or to really uh, start to hone in on your gardening skills and knowledge.
0: awesome excellent thank you for that Robin um yeah thanks very much for your time today I really appreciate it um and yeah hopefully um, the floods have subsided and you won't get hit by another yeah, we're just waiting downfall. for
1: the mud to dry <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay well thank you Ryan it's been lovely chatting with you and uh, hope yeah some of this inspires people to Start working on that community level because, and that's where we can really start to make a difference, especially, you know, as we start to face, um, you know, more and more you know, catastrophic situations and many collapses and stuff, which is inevitable uh, without you know, climate breakdown. Um, so, yeah, the best thing is sort of like, yeah, look at what you can do in your own patch, but Build community because ultimately that's where we can really make a difference.
0: Beautiful. Wonderful message to Thank end you. on. Thank you. Thanks very much, Robin. Bye.